This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Edward Nevermont is a speaker and executive consultant with one mission, to help marketing teams grow their business. On this episode of Marketing Trends, the former CMO of General Assembly talks through a number of hot topics, most notably that personalization is only as hard as marketers make it out to be. He also explains why rebrands for known companies are never a good idea and offers his three-step process for great marketing. Enjoy this episode. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends. And today we have special guest, Ed, what's going on? Uh, you know, I'm making it work. I uh, actually cut my hand, my finger very, very badly the other night. So I'm, I'm doing this one-handed, but oh, thankfully podcasts do not require the use of my right index finger. Jeez. Yeah. It, well, you know, it doesn't until, uh, until you need to uh, grab that glass of water, but the whistle here. Well, that's all right. I'm totally capable of, uh, of drinking with my left hand these days. We'll, d- we'll do a fully left-handed podcast today. Um, we're going to get into your book. We're going to get into what you're writing about marketing BS. We're going to get into your background as a CMO and much more. So let's get into it. How did you get started in marketing in the first place? My, my first job was at Procter & Gamble. I really didn't understand what the difference between marketing and sales was back then. And I ended up in a CBD role, which was basically helping out retailers and helping them market more effectively. And uh, I, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the math part of it. And there wasn't enough of the math part. I ended up going to a business school at Wharton in order to get stronger at the math. My, my background prior to that was physics. So I was a math analytics guy. And I liked the idea of combining that with something that was more practical in the everyday everyday world. Uh, so I spent a couple of years at Wharton studying under some pretty smart guys and then went to McKinsey and spent four years traveling around the world trying to implement those ideas. So flash forward to today. Tell me a little bit about your current role. So t- today I do a bunch of different stuff. Um, I, I help out, there's a private equity firm called Warburg Pincus, uh, one of the larger, more successful ones. They, uh, they buy companies that they're a growth based firm. And so their job is to, they're not trying to like cut costs or do financial engineering. Uh, they don't bet on trends. They're very focused on buying companies that have good fundamentals and then helping them fix and scale those businesses to make them better. And, uh, they brought me on about a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, just to help, help them do that. Uh, and so I helped them a little bit on diligence to think through the marketing opportunities of these different companies. And then after they uh, acquire a company, I work with the CMO or the CEO to help them find ways to grow uh, any way that they can. I've, it's a size of company that I've worked with a lot in the past, and I've been a CMO at companies of that size. Uh, and so I come at it for as, as a practitioner. Most of the investors at, at, uh, at Warburg Pincus, while very, very smart guys, are finance guys, not practitioners. So I get to be one of the few practitioners in the firm helping them uh, scale these businesses. So are you working directly with like the CMOs of those companies? Or are you working, like who, who are you working with? Generally, the CMOs, uh, oftentimes the CEOs, and in some cases, the head of sales or the head of customer success. I, I generally believe that as soon as you start treating marketing as like something that where you're just doing advertising, you, you're doing it wrong. Um, marketing is really fundamentally about how do you grow a business. And in many businesses, the the CMO is the one who's in charge of that. But in other businesses, it ends up being the head of sales or head of customer success or the CEO themselves. And so uh, I kind of shift, depending on the company, I shift into different positions to help them think about how they, uh, how, they, how they achieve that success and that growth. Product as well, oftentimes product, not just um, a marketing or sales. Sometimes if you can fix the website itself and think about how you bundle your product, how you price your product. Sometimes that doesn't fall into the head of marketing, but it's something that could be the key driver for a particular company to get them to grow to the next level. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it a lot on the show about how marketing and product are closer than ever. Uh, it's really, you know, one of the things that's been the most eye-opening with how close marketing is to revenue now. Um, and it's something that it's only going to go up from here or depending on your company, depending on your role. Yeah, it really varies, right? If you're if you're selling to large enterprises, 
growth is going to be driven by sales and marketing can support that, but it's a sales problem. Uh, if you're a pure consumer product, consumer business selling products for $100, uh, marketing is the, the most important thing for driving your growth and the sales is just going to be a rounding error on that. And then you can imagine everything between that, between like your $10 or $100 price point to your million dollar price point, uh, there's a, a continuum of how important marketing versus sales can be. So you wrote a book called Marketing BS, and it it touched my heartstrings because I love BS and I love marketing. Um, my dad always said that he majored in rhetoric, which is just really BS. So um, I'm curious, do you think marketing is BS? Do you think we're doing BS? Do you think that there's just too much of it? Why uh, Why'd you name the book and, and what's it about? Yes, it, it is a cha- the, t- the title is obviously a pr- provocative title. I don't think marketing is BS. I think marketing is extremely, extremely important. Build a better mousetrap and there'll be the path to your door is the greatest lie ever told to an entrepreneur. If you ever try to build something that you think is great, you'll soon find that no one else cares about your product unless you find a way to do marketing. Marketing helps drive growth of businesses, helps drive efficiencies, helps make people aware of uh, things that meet their needs. Um, it's a, the lubricant for a modern society. And I think it's very important and very valuable. And I think it's a good thing. It gets a bad rap, but I think the, that rap is wrong. And I definitely don't want to add to that rap. I'm not one of those guys standing up there sh- shouting from the rooftops about how we need to cut all marketing. I, I think the problem in marketing is not so much that marketing is BS. It's that there is a lot of BS in marketing. A lot of what we're doing is a waste of time, a waste of effort and counterproductive. And, and that's really what the book is about. It's about stopping the madness, stopping all the stuff that's making marketing not work to focus on the stuff that actually does. Uh, the books are an exploration of that. So the, the the majority of the book talks about kind of why there's mar- why this BS continues to exist. You would think that in, for all the faults of capitalism, capitalism is really really good at rooting out inefficiencies, and businesses that are doing a poor job doing a lot of marketing BS should be less efficient than the ones who aren't doing BS. And you'd think that at least in the long term, those inefficient BS field companies would be eliminated and the non BS companies would proliferate and eventually BS would kind of go away. Uh, and yet, for some reason, it's not. And so, the book is an exploration of why that is. And effectively, over about nine chapters, I dive into the, the, the drivers of that in a very storytelling type way. So, we talk about the incentives and why the incentives are causing a problem. We talk about uh, why humans are drawn to shiny objects and why, why that's a problem, why we trust our customers too much, why we trust best practice too much, why we're so focused on feedback and what problems that causes. Uh, and then the last three chapters, I kind of dive into what the answer could be instead. What are some examples of, of BS that you see in the market now? A good example is personalization. So personalization has been this thing that everyone has been striving for for the last 20 years, it feels like. And it seems to be the answer all over the place. We talk to a marketing vendor, every email vendor on the planet wants to talk to you about how they can improve your personalization. And you can buy and sell data to help your personalization. And they have algorithms to help your personalization. And the, the whole concept and idea is, I think, for most companies, BS. I think the, the one of the more famous stories about personalization is the target story from, oh, I think it was 2013. And the story goes that uh, it was, a, it was a, a writer of the New York Times who wrote the piece. Now, this is back in the days when, <laughs> back before everyone was worried about Amazon, they were worried about the big retail and how they were going to like steal all our data and do all sorts of terrible things to us. And so the, t- the piece was basically about how Target takes all your purchase data and uses that to predict who you are and what you're going to buy next. And uh, as the story goes, um, this man charged into his Target store and demanded to talk to the manager. And he said, basically, how dare you do this? You sent a note to my daughter claiming she was pregnant. My daughter's only 16 years old. Why would you do that? You're such terrible people. And the manager apologized, apologized, apologized. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then apparently three days later, the manager called the man back again to apologize a second time. And this time the man... Uh, the, the the father who had charged into the store said, no, 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 it's my turn to apologize. It turns out you were right. My daughter was pregnant. You guys knew before I did. And that little tidbit within, it was like a, this large four or 5,000 word article. It was like a few paragraphs, but that tidbit got spread all over the place. Forbes picked it up uh, and then went over the pond to the Guardian. It was in Fox News. It was everywhere. It was like, retailers know all this stuff about you. It's scary. It's, it's, it's da- dangerous. Marketers jumped all over and be like, hi, I want to be able to do that. But uh, the, the basic story was just wrong. And I go into, that, into why that was in my book. It's this problem with false positives. As soon as you get to a situation where you're trying to detect 
a low likelihood event or low likelihood individual within a broader group, even if your test is very, very accurate, your, your false positives are going to overpower your positives. And the easy way to think about that is if 1% of people are pregnant and your test is 90% accurate and a 90% accurate test on purchase behavior would be obscenely more accurate than anything I've ever seen, you'll still end up with 10 times more false positives than you will accurate predictions. And so what do you do with a test that predicts whether someone's pregnant or not with like say 30% accuracy? 30% is far more than the percentage in the overall population. So in some ways it's a great test, but in terms of actionability, uh, you said, hey, a note saying, hey, you're, congratulations, you're, there's a 30% chance you're pregnant. What, what does a marketer do with that? And, and you see these problems all the time. Amazon is one of the best in the world at uh, personalization. And yet, like, you go and buy a toilet seat cover from Amazon, and then pretty soon Amazon thinks you collect them. Yeah, it's a great point. We, we, uh, we talked about that recently on an episode that, uh, that it's so rare that you get, I mean, I think, I think personalization is the future in certain ways, because if you did get it right, or if you got close to it, or if you got better than the average, like that would be a great thing, but it's kind of like chasing the white whale a little bit for a lot of people. You just don't really have enough information, especially if you are, uh, a company, like you said, if you're a B2B company, right. And it's like, you're working, you know, you have 300, you know, named accounts. It's like, what are your data points really? Like, it's pretty difficult to figure that out. If you're, you know, if you're a company like Amazon where you sell everything under the sun, uh, or you're a retailer like that, it's like, maybe you can get a little bit more predictive or if you're, you know, a, a, a grocery store or something like that, it's like, Hey, every week you buy, you know, a bushel of bananas. Um, did you forget your bananas this week? They're not in your shopping cart. It's like, sure, that stuff helps a ton, but like the amount of data required to get to that point is is significant and repetitive. Uh, so how do you do that if you're Toyota or, or Ford, right? Like, how do you get to that? You know, you buy six cars in your whole life. Um, how are we going to, you know, use personalization to figure that out if we have absolutely no history on you? Yeah. And then the answer is you don't. Like, don't, don't do that. There's so many other things you could be doing instead. The, the most effective pers- personalization, I'll use that in quotes, is asking what your customers what they want and then giving them what they want. Uh, and it's not using a fancy algorithm. It's just giving them a drop-down menu. Um, travel companies figured that out a long time ago, which is like, hey, give me a travel alert when the price of the flight to Singapore drops. You don't need a fancy algorithm to predict that this person wants to go to Singapore. The person just told you, I want to go to Singapore. Email me when it does. At General Assembly, our most effective personalization was when we did exactly that. When we got a new email address in, we asked them, of the five topics we cover, which topics do you want to hear from us on? And people chose the topics they wanted. And we actually tested that. And we tried sending people what they asked for, and we tried tests. We, we tried sending them, not, just ignoring their, their their opinion, and sending them what what our algorithm said they were interested in. And it turns out that people are pretty accurate when they tell you they want something. Yeah, I, I, that was one of the things that um, I talked to the CTO of Stitch Fix a while back, and one of the interesting things that they saw uh, in their product development was like if you asked someone to fill out like all of their um, essentially measurements or the data points. There's a certain number of data points that they need in order for clothes to, to fit better. And I think it's like 12 or something like that. And if someone only chose five, the likelihood that they were going to be a happy Stitch Fix customer was actually, it was actually worse. Like they didn't want people to do that, right? They wanted people to fill out a minimum of, I think it was 10 because once you pass that threshold, that means that that person's clothes are going to fit better. And so it's a forcing function to get happy customers on the front end, even though you're losing uh, a bunch of revenue on the back end, but you're making dissatisfied customers. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. What's the, what's the anecdote to, uh, to some of that stuff? How does a C, CMO, you know, obviously we talk to a lot of CMOs of, of different types of companies. Some companies are shifting away from the role of a CMO entirely. So like, what's the antidote to, to try to figure this out for today? Um, with the acknowledgement that obviously there's a million different, uh, types of companies and you have to adjust to the one that you're doing. Um, but you know, is, is the, is the role of, of the CMO, is it necessary? Is it going to be around? Is it going to change significantly? How does what's the what's it look like? Historically, if you go back far enough, like even like thirty years, CMOs were basically um, 
brand managers, right? They, they followed the model of Procter and Gamble and Unilever, and their their job was to manage ad agencies. Their job was to figure out positioning and placement, like, um, uh, price, the, 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 the traditional stuff you see in a business school course. Uh, it was very qualitative. It was very much uh, trying to figure things out and tell stories around them. Uh, it was it, the equivalent in finance was, hey, in the 1970s, f- finance people were salespeople. Then came the early 80s and a bunch of these finance hedge funds figured out that they could hire people from MIT who are really smart in math and do some arbitrage. And all of a sudden, uh, they could do all sorts of things that the, the glad-handing sales guys couldn't do. The same transition happened in marketing. It only took the internet to make it happen. In the last 15-ish, 20 years, uh, we've seen marketing shift from being this very qualitative, storytelling, madman type world into a very much performance-driven math type world. And, and that, that trend is only accelerating. In some ways, that's great. Uh, but I think it was Hegel that talked about uh, the, the thesis, antithesis, and, uh, and synthesis. Well, I think we've, just like finance had a problem where the, all those math guys started believing the numbers a little too much, and we ended up with crises like uh, a long-term capital management, uh, where they had all their numbers, and they're like, the numbers all prove that everything's going to be great, and it turns out that they were wrong. Um, we have, we're having the same problem in marketing, where we've gone from these really qualitative brand manager type marketers who treat marketing as uh, an expense line and want to make their budgets as big as possible, to these performance marketers where treat every where it's all about fast feedback, and if you can't measure it, it's not true, and 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 both those types of marketers are wrong. There there is a th- synthesis synthesis where we take elements of both those marketers to build this new type of marketer. And every time I talk to a private equity firm or venture capital firm that they're looking to find a new CMO, the challenge is they're looking for this third type of marketer who can market the third way, who understands the math and can talk math and understands performance marketing, uh, but also understands the big picture and the long-term effects and knows that just because you can't measure something doesn't mean it's not true. And they can invest in that in those long-term impacts. And that's, that's, that's where the CMO role is going. And that's kind of what my mission has been, is to start that conversation around, hey, you don't need to be one of these two types of marketers. You probably started as one of these two types of marketers, but you need to build the muscles on the other type if you want to really be truly successful in the world. I, you know, I think we talk about that a pretty decent amount on the show of like the, like the five tool marketer that just doesn't really exist in the wild um, of the person who has, you know, all of those attributes you know, you just don't have enough time in your career to be able to to develop all of those and to be able to have have enough uh, you know skills to do that. So you have to have really strong VPs or directors that are that are subject matter experts in those things. I'm curious though about specifically with the the second group of people that you were talking about, the data driven people that if you can't measure it, it doesn't happen. I think what we've seen here is people who got really, really, really good at this that had big enough budgets, especially if they're like D to C or something where they control 100% of the funnel. Um, and they knew that, you know, if they spend a, a dollar, they get back a dollar 20. And then they just like, you know, you know, pour the pedal to the metal. What does that lack in opportunity? What are you missing if you're doing that? If you can figure out how to make a buck 20 uh, for a for dollar, What's the what's like the arbitrage that uh, is there? Yeah, so, so hey, I'm I'm a big fan of money machines. If you can put in a dollar and it spits out a dollar twenty for real, um, you should. Your, your question shouldn't be like, what else should I do? The question should be is how much money can I stick in this machine? And and performance markers tend to be pretty good at that sometimes. Although even there, you sometimes end up with blinders where they start believing their own attribution models, uh, and you end up with things like retargeting where they're spending a dollar and it says it's spitting out $2, but in actual fact, 80% of those $2 would have come back to the site anyway. And they're actually spending a dollar to make 40 cents. And so that happens a lot, a lot, a lot in uh, with performance marketers who are so focused on the math, they're not looking at the big picture. One of the first things I look at when I come in to help fix a business is, is their retargeting and wh- whether it actually is incremental as they think. The, the, the second big problem though is this feedback problem of 30-day last touch only tells you what's going to happen in the next 30 days. But a lot of the value of brand, of marketing is, is longer than 30 days. Um, 
when I was running television advertisements at a place for mom, we were making a new set of ads and we we're interviewing some customers to be in the ads. And uh, we asked all of them, like, kind of like, how did you get to a place for mom? And the number of times people said stories like, hey, I saw you guys on television. And then three or four months later, uh, my mom needed help. And I remembered that I saw your ad and I came to your site. Uh, and so here's an ad that ran three months earlier that, that directly drove that sale measuring and tracking that is really, really, really hard. Um, uh, as close to impossible as it comes. You, you can't, you, you, it's impossible. You can't tie a specific sale back to that specific ad that happens three months later. Now you can do it on averages and you can look at trends and you can do some correlations, but it's difficult. The, the other thing that good brand television type marketing does is it decreases the price sensitivity. The number of companies that measure price elasticity on a regular basis is really, really, really small. That doesn't mean it's not real. If you focus so much on the spend a dollar on Google to generate a dollar twenty, you lose sight of the fact of some of the bigger things you could be doing. And I'm not saying don't spend the dollar to make a dollar twenty. You should be focused on that all day and all night. If you have a place, if you have a place where you're spending a dollar to make a dollar twenty, you should be spending a million dollars or ten million dollars to make one point two million or uh, twelve million dollars. Um, but you shouldn't only be doing that. L- Long term. Um, brandish type marketing is, is a real thing. And just because you can't measure it within 30 days doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. So, and and the reason why I think that where you get short-sighted with that is like you A-B test yourself and you split your, you split and split and split and split until you get to the point where you get finally to that. But then the issue that becomes then is, do you know what is like next on the horizon. We just, we, re, I recently had a really good conversation about, you know, Salesforce uh, early days um, when Mark Benioff was positioning the company and they're our awesome sponsor. So shout out to Salesforce, but uh, it's not related to that, that, you know, the thing was like, they could have positioned everything as, uh, you know, technology for your Salesforce. But what they did was just like software with a red line through it, right? It's like, you know, paying to educate the market, which has huge, you know, inefficiency at times if you lose, um, but huge market uh, efficiencies when you win, especially with things like category design and creation. It's like inherently there's going to be waste in your spend when you do that because you have a massive group of of people that are not going to adopt that methodology. But when you do it for, you know, over five years or 10 years or 15 years, all of a sudden you're the market leader. And I think that that's one of those things that I think you lose with the performance marketing, right? It's like, how do you own an idea? How do you own a category when everything that you're doing is all uh, is all lower funnel stuff? Um, and it's an interesting question. I'm curious if you, if you have any thoughts on you know, the category design side of things. No, no, I, th- I think I think you're right. It's 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 a tough problem uh, because think of it this way: if you're going to be driving with Google Maps, most of the time you should just follow what Google Maps tells you to do. But if you know the the if you know where you're going well enough, if you know the area well enough, there are times when you know the answer better than Google Maps does. And the question is, when do you decide to overrule Google Maps? And for most people, the answer is never. You should not overrule Google Maps. When you do, you're going to get a worse solution than what Google Maps is doing. But if you're good enough and you're smart enough and you know when to overrule them, there are times when you should be overruling Google Maps. And, and it's the same kind of thing with, with data. If, if, if you're not a very good marketer, you should be doing what the data tells you because the data is going to serve you better than your own intuition because your own intuition is probably wrong. But we all should aspire to be much better than that to get to the point where we can look at the data and know when to believe the data, when to question it. There's a great quote by... Jeff Bezos, oh, about a year ago, maybe two years ago now. And he said something like, when the anecdotes and the data disagree, the anecdotes are usually right and you're measuring something wrong. And, and, and that works in a situation like Amazon because Amazon is such a data-driven company where all of the employees are so focused on following the data that the CEO can say, hey, take a step back. And sometimes, guys, the data is wrong. We need to figure out why it's wrong and what to do about it. He's pushing in the right direction for a company like Amazon. For every company like Amazon, there are hundreds of companies that don't listen to data at all, and it's all about intuition and whatever the highest paid person in the room is. And those people don't need Bezos' advice. They need to be focused on getting better at listening to the data, not knowing when to ignore it. But the highest performing companies, the highest performing CMOs have the ability to look at the data and then know when to not follow the data 
even if they fall in the majority of the cases. Another thing about performance marketing is that it is the casino, right? Again, it's like, you know, if your edge is that you can you can do a little better and you're, you know, you're whatever, let's say in this analogy, you're counting cards or something like that. So you do have a slight edge. At the end of the day, marketing isn't about always having incremental improvement. And there are campaigns in marketing that outperform all of the rest of your marketing. And we've seen this over and over and over again. Um, And a lot of times people change up just to change up. And one of the classic examples we always use is, uh, is with the most interesting man in the world, that Dos Equis hit that out of the park and they killed the campaign and or they did some sort of survey, someone did a survey and it was like one of the ty- highest uh, like satisfaction marketing campaigns of all time. And nobody was sick of it. Everybody loved that campaign. And who knows why they killed it, irrelevant for this. But the idea is like nobody was sick of that and it was actually good advertising that people enjoyed watching, um, which is so hard to do. And yet- like those types of campaigns, even when people get it right, they still somehow pivot for whatever reason off of it. And it's like that campaign went for like seven years and it could have gone for another 70 for all we know. Um, and yet here we are. Well, I think the reason why campaigns like that die in many cases is because from the outside, we're saying, we're saying hey, why would the company change? But from the inside, it's not about the company. It's about the individuals. And we, we need to remember that companies aren't these like monolithic borgs. They're made up a bunch of human beings who are making decisions. And so if you're the brand manager on that brand, it's a lot more interesting to do something new. Um, and you can, and taking a risk and trying something new is always more fun than just taking things that someone else has already done and, and, and keeping, we all, we all know if you want to convince somebody to do your idea, the best way to do it is to convince them it was their idea. So brand managers are constantly making changes when we know all the science says that is that change is bad. That if you have a brand and you have brand elements, getting people to remember and connect with those brand elements is really, really, really hard. Um, and once it's done, once you've made those connections, you don't want to lose it. And yet brands reinvent themselves all the time. And it's almost always the wrong decision. How do you view some of the marketing um, strategies or channels like content, like originals, um, like the type of things that can be exponential in growth? Um, It's something that, you know, we had Beth Comstock on here about 200 episodes ago, and she said that she had 10% of her budget uh, 10 to 15% of her budget, that was kind of like a moonshot part of the budget where it's just for things that could, you know, absolutely blow up or knock out of the park. Do you think that that's a, a good way of thinking that CMOs should allocate uh, their budgets around, you know, what's working, what might be great? And then, you know, we have no idea if this is going to work, but if it's an experiment worth running. Yeah. I guess. Yes. I think you should try to find new things. I think the, um, I, I talk about the 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 process of doing good marketing is I call it search scale re- re- refine, and the first and hardest part is searching for something new that's going to work, and that's really really hard. Uh, once you find something that works, you scale the crap out of it. So if, again, if you have a machine that's put you put in a dollar and it spits out two dollars, you want to be putting in ten million dollars to have it spit out twelve, uh, spit out twenty, or put in a hundred to spit out two hundred, or put in four hundred to spit out eight hundred, like that. That you need to keep pushing that thing until you hit diminishing returns. And then once you get something really, really big, then you spend time refining it and making it better. It's not worth doing if it's going to be really small. But once it gets really big, like a 10% improvement on a dollar is not worth it. But 10% improvement on $100 million is worth an awful lot of effort and a lot of FTEs thrown at that. And so the scaling and the refining tend to be much easier. And it's where your low-hanging fruit is. And if you haven't done it, you need to be doing it. But eventually the scaling and the refining, you end up with diminishing returns. And so you need to be constantly searching for new stuff that you're going to find the opportunity to scale at some point in the future. And there's no guarantee there isn't any new stuff, but uh, it doesn't mean you can, you can afford to stop looking. And some of that new stuff you're looking for should be just stuff other companies have done that you can say, hey, I'm going to go and try to do it for me. And s- some percentage of those things that work for other people will probably work for me. And you should have a, a, like a list of that stuff that you work through. And some of it will be very unique to your particular business. At A Place for Mom, one of our big home runs was working with hospital discharge planners on a very offline, non-auctiony driven process. And it took us years to figure out a way to make it work. But when it did, it, it took off and was a major part of our business. And then some of those searching things are the stuff that you talked about, which is 
Can you do something that's wild and crazy, a stuntish type work? And most of those stunts aren't going to work. And they, like, if your strategy is to go viral, you need a new strategy. Um, if you can do stuff that I, I, I call it hunting for rabbits and, hurting, and hoping for elephants, right? You send the you, or squirrels, you, you send your, your, your hunters out and their job is okay, go out and catch us some, some rabbits and some squirrels and make sure you can build enough protein based on the, the amount that you're burning doing it. But every now and then when you're out hunting squirrels and elephants, squirrels and, and, and rabbits, an elephant comes by. And if you get an elephant, then, 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 then make hay. That's the kind of the way I like to think of some of those radical ideas where, hey, go and do some of those things and hope that, that it, you can get enough small wins that it kind of pays for itself. Um, but you're setting yourselves up for the small probability that something blows up and becomes really, really big. I'm curious, when you were CMO at General Assembly, um, how did you look at at those types of uh, investment decisions? Man, hey, I, I got brought into General Assembly to fix problems. We did not have latitude to go and take, make, at least invest in very many big bets. Um, we, our job was, my, my job was to turn around a business that was struggling. And uh, that's where the focus was. It was, it was very much every single dollar counted. And what could we do to save one more dollar to keep this business afloat? The consumer business was hitting a wall and uh, the enterprise business was really set to take off. And our job was to kind of keep the lights on while we gave breathing space for that enterprise business to, 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 to move where it needed to go. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time cutting a lot of those bets. Um, we, 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 we were spending on things like Snapchat filters, and that was one of the first things to go. Anytime someone tells me, hey, we were spending this money, we don't know if it's working or not. That's why we're only spending $100,000 a month. That's just not acceptable. I'm fine if it works, spend millions of dollars. And if it doesn't work, kill it. Or if we're not sure if it works, build a plan to figure out if it's going to work. But the idea that this may or may not work, so let's spend a small amount of money, even though a small amount of money still ends up being six figures or uh, seven figures a year, um, that, that just needed to get cut. And so I, that's where I spent a lot of my time. My, I spent my time at GA not looking, not searching. I spent a lot of my time cutting inefficient spend, scaling up efficient spend, and refining existing channels to make them better. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's a really interesting case study because I think that that's I think what a lot of people should be doing all the time, right? Is like figuring out how to be ruthless with the things that aren't working, but also give it the latitude that like, hey, we give it a we gave it a fair shake and it and it didn't really work. Like I, I don't even yeah I don't even know what uh, what those filters what would have been the. Uh, you know, the pipeline generated for, uh, for the filters for, for that much spend. But, but it, that is one of the common mistakes, right? It's like, Hey, it's a brand new channel or like a pretty new channel. It's a pretty cool thing. You know, maybe we got to spend big to win big, but, uh, I'm curious, like how you think other CMOs could look at things like that and just know when to kill them. It's hard. It depends on your price point. And so if you're a low price point product, you can usually test out with a fairly small budget to see whether it works or not. So if, you're, if your product's worth $100, you can go spend $20,000 on a channel and you'll find out whether a bunch of $100 sales are not from that channel, as long as you set up your tests right, correctly, right? So, and sometimes that may mean it takes, it takes long term. So it doesn't just mean, hey, doing an A-B test on paid search. Um, it could mean, hey, doing an A-B test by city. We're going to launch this radio ads in Austin. We're not going to launch them in Dallas. And we're going to see if Austin gets a bigger lift than Dallas. And again, it, none of that stuff's going to get perfect, but you should get at least directional. And again, if your price point's small enough, you'll know whether your $20,000 is getting you a bunch of $100 sales or not. Um, and you can keep it running for a period of months to see whether or not it takes time for the action to actually happen. If your price point of your product is a million dollars, say you're a big enterprise sale, you, you are out of luck <laughs> because if you run a $20,000 test, that's not going to tell you anything. If the $20,000 actually drives a sale, then, uh, hey, congratulations, you found the most effective marketing channel on the planet. Go nuts, spend, spend millions of dollars on it. Um, but if the $20,000 doesn't lead to a sale, well, that doesn't tell you very much at all. It tells you that your ROI is not going to be like over 1,000%. It doesn't tell you anything about it, whether you have 100% ROI or even like 20% ROI. And so, so as your price point gets higher, you have to use more and more judgment and you can't just trust the numbers and the data. Yeah, so speaking of data, um, you know, the recent... Uh a report that Salesforce just published, they talked about, you know, how do we, how do brands and CMOs leverage data? How do they leverage other people's data? How do we build trust? Uh, because, you know, a lot of people, especially with GDPR and things like that, those are a huge concern. I'm just, I'm curious, like, 
how do you think CMOs should be looking at data? I know it's a it's a it's a broad question, but I'm curious what you've seen in your research. Yeah, so I'm not sure exactly what you're getting at, but you're talking about privacy. Um, my, my belief: customers just don't care. They, they, if you ask them on a survey, they might say they care, but they sure don't act like they care. DuckDuckGo is one click away and nobody uses it. Google has like 99.9% market share versus DuckDuckGo, 99.99. I don't know how many, how many nines there are there. Um, customers just don't care about their privacy. Uh, customers care about the product meeting their needs, care about convenience. They care about reducing effort, both physical and mental. Customers don't want to get screwed. So they're more than happy to go back to the big brands that have met their comp promises in the past, but they, uh, they don't care about privacy. Um, people who care about privacy are government regulators. It's the media, activists, people who are anti-tech, but actual consumers. They, they might say they care, but they, 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 they're not going to act on it. It's very much a, a perception of caring rather than actual caring. Because you, you, know, you, know you know who really invades your privacy? It's not Google and Facebook. It's people like your friends. And your family—they're they're the ones you should need to, you should worry about if you're worried about your privacy. Even things like the new cancel culture, where people are getting canceled because of like an old tweet they sent out four years ago. Notice it's not that Twitter is selling that data; it's that people put that tweet out there. They made it publicly available. Um, there's an option to auto delete your tweets on Twitter, and very few people use it. I think if you're going to be worried about privacy, it's all about um, public relations and positioning. Uh, getting media coverage of your business in, in a positive manner. It's about avoiding heavy duty regulation from the government, but it's certainly not about your customers. Your customers have other things to worry about. Hey, you know, you know who you know who does sell your data? The DMV, but nobody's up in arms and trying to like regulate the DMV. You know who else shouts about getting, uh, selling your data and how terrible it is? is the New York Times. They're writing about it all the time. But you go onto the New York Times uh, terms and conditions page, and they talk about how they sell your data. They're not even secretive about it. So like, people, people don't care. It's, 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 a, it's a, a thing that to make noise about, not, not something that your customers actually care about. So if that's the case, um, then, then, what should, then how, should be, how should CMOs be thinking about how they're collecting and leveraging data um, you know, with regards to the regulations that are out there so that they can optimize the customer experience, they can optimize um, that customer journey so that they can make you know, insightful recommendations and, and, uh, and talk to their customers more effectively. So, so, so first of all, focus on following the law. Um, and that's harder than it looks. There's a company, I'm an advisor for a company called Osano that is doing exactly that. They're basically just like collecting sales tax is really, really difficult these days because in the old days, if you sold on the internet, you didn't need to worry about collecting sales tax. And then that changed. And now you need to collect sales tax separately for every uh, state and municipality across America and around the world. Uh, and there's companies now that have formed up to help smaller businesses manage collection of sales tax. Osano is kind of doing the same thing for privacy because the privacy rules in Europe are different than the US and they're different in California than they are in Philadelphia. And so if you want to go and follow those laws, it's, 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 a, challenging, it's a challenging barrier. Um, and so you should spend time and effort trying to do that because breaking the law is probably, is very rarely the right choice. And then beyond that, uh, the answer is like, how do you use your data effectively is spend less time thinking about using your data effectively and spend more time thinking about what business goals you're shooting for and then what data you need to use in order to achieve those goals. I had a, oh, a CMO, uh, it was a number of years ago now, he came to me, a big Fortune 500 company. So they sold a really high price point product. He wanted to know how he could l- connect his like marketing platform to his CRM platform. If like a salesperson is working with a customer and that customer visits the website, he wanted to take that, the page that, that the customer was visiting and feed that information to the salesperson. So the salesperson can have a better conversation with the customer. And that all sounds fine and good. Um, and it's fairly simple, right? We're not talking about like personalization algorithms. We're talking about just feeding the information to the salesperson. But even there, I, my, my first question to him was, when your marketing team generates a lead and sends it to your sales team, how long does it take your salesperson to call the lead back? And he had no idea. And I said, hey, before you worry about this like marketing CRM sales integration stack, why don't we start by solving the problem of calling back your customers when they want to talk to you? And too many companies are spending time trying to integrate their technology stacks and trying to find the uses for the data they have rather than just calling their customers back when they want to talk and then figuring how fast they should be calling them back. Like there's, there's a, a million things you can be doing just on that one step in the process. Like, should you call your customers back within 30 seconds? Should you just wait two minutes? Should you wait eight minutes? Should it take two hours? What, what, what happens to your conversion rate based on what that callback time is? And then once you figure out what that perfect callback time is, how do you optimize your systems to actually hit that number? 
And then when you get on that call, um, who should be handling that call? Which salesperson should you get each particular lead to? Uh, there's a ton of stuff that can be done right then and there that a lot of companies aren't doing because they're getting distracted by thinking about how they can use their data. Yeah, it's a great point. We uh, we had Craig Swenzer from Qualified.com on the show talking about how if uh, you know if if a Fortune 500 CEO that was your top prospect like walked up to you know the outside of your your door and like tapped on the glass, it's like would someone go get them? Would they bring them in? Would they who like who would they immediately bring them to talk to? Like who, you know, if they wanted to learn more about you, uh, like in person, we know exactly what we would do. But if that person's on your website, you would just go to the glass and be like, Hey, just come back tomorrow. Someone will, someone will, uh, schedule, uh, you know, send you like five emails to try to find time in your calendar over the next week. And then we'll send the lowest person or a company to talk to you about this. And it's like, it just makes absolutely no sense that, that that's how we leverage our websites. Yeah. Like to me, like the most powerful concepts in marketing are awareness and reach and then convenience and distribution. That's what a good CMO marketer should be thinking about all the time. So what do you think, what channels are, uh, are the best right now or are specifically, you know, ready to, uh, ready to optimize that you've seen? It's hard to say. Like, what's clear is which channels are the biggest right now. And so that, 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 in some ways, that's the same as being the best because if a channel just isn't very big, there's not a lot you can do with, even if it's really, really high ROI. If there's, if you can't just put, if you can't put enough money into that machine, uh, if the, if it's a machine where you put in a dollar and it spits out ten dollars, but it's limited to one dollar a year, it's just not that interesting. And so, the companies need to find a way to to master as much as possible the big channels. And, and the big, everyone knows who the big channels are, right? It's things like television, it's uh, paid search, it's paid social on Facebook, it's radio. Like <laughs> that's kind of it, right? Those are the, those are those are the big ones. Um, the challenge with all those big channels is everybody else knows of the, those are the big channels too. And so they've turned into auctions. Well, some of them are like, like paid search and paid social are, are like literally an auction. Um, they're, they're run as Dutch auctions. Um, but even television is effectively an auction with a clearing price. And so you are competing against everybody else who wants to buy that same media. Uh, and that's tough, right? Like it means that the, the way you win in a situation like that is you get better than your competitors at knowing which media to buy and which media not to buy, where the opportunity is. And then you get better at monetizing the impressions that you do get. And that's all the hard lifting that takes to, to, to run a business. There's no real big magic bullet there other than doing good. And people don't have often enough of the patience to, to, to do good. Uh, and so like, you could talk about each one of those channels. And, um, and I, I do a bit in my book about how to do each one of them better and more and better. Uh, but you're always going to be up against the fact that everyone else is trying to do better too. What about content? I'm a big believer in content. Um, so the problem with content is most people just do crap content. If you're a consumer brand, it's not that hard to do content. If you're a B2B brand, it's actually really, really difficult. We, we did this at a place for mom. We, we were able to write all sorts of content around health and wellness for seniors. And we could hire writers fairly inexpensively to go and create that content. And we got tons of engagement and so on. But as soon as you're writing for a B2B audience, now you need someone with expertise. If, if, you, if you're an expert in something, and then you've ever read like a New York Times article about the thing that you're an expert in, you know how terrible journalists are, right? You know, like, hey, the, they have no idea what they're talking about. But if you're a, writing for that B2B audience, you can't write that same quality that the New York Times journalist is writing for a general audience. And so now you're left with trying to find people who, to write your content that know the category and know what they're talking about, combined with the ability to write. And those people are very, both very rare and in high demand. Oftentimes it's a CEO. There's a great story about, I don't know if you're familiar with um, OK Trends. OK Cupid was a, was a blog about, um, uh, it was not a blog, I'm sorry. OK Cupid was a, a, a dating website. No, it still is. It's owned by Match.com now. But back in the days when they were independent, uh, one of the co-founders started writing a blog called OK Trends. And he would dive into the data that they were generating and write really fascinating, interesting blog posts. It's still archived on the web. I highly recommend you go back and read some of his old ones. And um, when they got acquired by, by Match, he eventually stopped writing the blog. And people said, why did you stop, Chris? Why didn't you keep, why didn't you keep writing the blog posts? And he's like, I just got too busy. I'm doing all sorts of other things, da-da-da. Like, we got acquired. I've, like, I'm a co-founder. I have other things I need to get done. And they said, why didn't you get someone else to write them? And he said, because no one else can. He's like, it, it takes like the, the co-founder of the business who's able to write in a very articulate way and also 
dive into the data and then find the stuff that's actually interesting and write about it. And that he could, he found he, he couldn't find somebody to replace him at any price. And that's the challenge you have writing B2B content is that you either get people who know what they're talking about, but can't write to save their lives or people who can write, but don't really understand the content. And you can try partnering those two types of people together, but even that tends not to work. And so if you can find somebody, you can do both those things together. They can write and they, and, it, and it's magical. Um, and it's worth a lot. But the problem is we don't pay those people a lot because we try, we, we try to compromise and, and, and take another option. I always say like, if you're a, a finance business, why, why isn't some finance company paying Matt Levine to stop writing for Bloomberg and start writing for them uh, and just take his following with them? And you can write his fantastic, hilarious finance newsletter on a daily basis. They should be paying him a million dollars a year. I don't know what Bloomberg's paying him, but they're not paying him a million dollars a year to write that thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's one of the things, uh, I think, gosh, like in our first 10 episodes, we had Matt Shafiro, who's the CMO of Vapor.io. And he was saying that when he goes in to a company like Series A or, or Series B, that time frame, that his like agreement with the CEO is like, you're going to spend 33% of your time or whatever it is on PR. And like what PR means is not just pure PR. It's like thought leadership, thinking, writing, speaking, um, getting your thoughts out there because it is critical for a B2B company that is pushing the pace of innovation for our CEO to be motivated to do that. And it helps with recruiting, which is a huge talent is a huge problem for every CEO. It's like the number one problem for every CEO. And it helps with, uh, you know, developing your customers. And there's a lot of companies who don't have that type of CEO, but if you do, and you don't, and you don't corral resources around them. Like it's such a wasted opportunity. There's no, there's no more important person in your company be to be talking about the company than your CEO. Yeah, it's it's hard though, right? Because as a CEO, you have all <laughs> you have a lot of other jobs too, right? Like you're probably the only person in charge of fundraising. You're probably the only person in charge of building the company culture. Um, you're probably the only person in charge of recruiting your direct reports, uh, and so. And that's before you even talk about, oftentimes in the smaller businesses, you're probably the person in charge of the product. And so the CEO's time is extremely, extremely valuable. Um, this is one of the many valuable things he could be doing, but I, I don't knock the CEOs that don't do it because they're probably doing something else that's also very valuable. Well, but I would say that if if she's not, if she's not building um, things that compound, if all of those conversations are one-on-one, if all of those conversations uh, are happening that don't scale then aren't you missing the boat? Like, isn't that the whole thing? It's like, well, this one activity serves all of those purposes a little bit and it scales really well because now our marketing team can promote what you think in addition to all of the one-on-ones that you're having. It's just an interesting, uh, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. I think that's how just investments in content have to be. It's like this one piece helps all of the rest of your marketing if it's done right. And even if it's one, I mean, we've seen this over and over again with B2B companies, where they create one amazing, really, really good piece of thought leadership, and then they promote it throughout the entire year. And that returns all of the effort that they put into it because it's really high quality and well done. Yeah. They talk about using data. That, that is actually a very good use of data where you take the proprietary data that your company is generating yep. and turn it into some sort of white paper offer it out there to journalists, but also to practitioners. And it turns out that like if, proprietary data about your industry, the people who want to buy your product are probably also interested in that proprietary data. And so it's a great, great source of leads. It was a company called Payscale, Warburg Pincus company that collected uh, data around compensation data for, for individuals and then turned around and packaged it and sold it. And they released like a state of the, state of the, state of the compensation industry report every year. And it was a ridiculously high number, something I want to say something like 60% of all of the leads they generated over the course of the year were either directly or indirectly came from that one white paper that they produced every year. Okay, let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like marketing with Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more. Check them out. Lightning round questions. Ed, are you ready? I'll do my best. Number one, have you picked up a hobby or habit during shelter in place? I have three kids under the age of five. That's my hobby with any spare moment I have. How about a book, TV show, or podcast that you've thoroughly enjoyed recently? Um, I started reading, I want to say the White Stranger, the White Stallion, uh, the, pale, the, the Pale Stallion, uh, all about the uh, 1918 flu and the impact it had around the world. I'm, I'm really enjoying that. If you weren't 
a marketer, what do you think you'd be doing? Good question. I, 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 there's so many things I love in the world. I love, uh, um, the problem is many of them are, many of them don't beat my talents and aren't lucrative enough. I, I started doing improv comedy when I was young and I spent a bunch of time doing stand up. I loved it. I love getting in front of the audience. It's just, it's a, it's a rough life. Um, either if you're doing improv, you don't, it doesn't pay at all. If you're doing stand up, you can make a living at it, but you're traveling all the time, assuming you're not like Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, and so I kind of gave up that world, but um, I still love it. Best advice for a first time CMO? Get your tracking in place very fast. You understand what's happening with your business. Then get your team in place because you're not going to, you need to get leverage. So you need to get your really, really smart people to like actually do the work and then prioritize like three or four projects and make sure those three or four projects actually happen. Well, that's it. Ed, this has been great. Everyone check out marketingbs.com. Uh, you can read what Ed writes. You're the best. Thanks for coming on. Any final thoughts? No, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.